You're listening to the Author Stories Podcast. Bringing you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Margaret Wise, Sherry Brooks, Sheena Kamal, Matthew Quick, JT Ellison, Walt D. Williams, Brad Ford, Corey, Dr. O, Brandon Sanderson, Robin Mom, Ernest Klein, Jim Butcher, Sherwin Harris. Visit hankgarner.com for archives of all the shows. Today's guest is... Well, thanks for joining me again for the Author Stories Podcast, where I bring you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Today, I'm really excited to have Barbara Borland on the show with me. She has a great new book. It's called The Force of Such Beauty, and this is one of the most unique books that I've experienced this year. Um, I love it. I know you will, too. Welcome to the show, Barbara. Thank you so much for having me, Hank. I'm delighted to be here. I'm uh, I'm excited to have you. Uh, Barbara, we begin each show with the same question, and that question is, what is your first memory of wanting to be a writer or storyteller? Oh, my gosh. I, <laughs> you know, as a, um, I've, I'm just a huge reader. I have always been um, such uh, an easy reader. I, I love to fall into literature. It's how I like to spend my off time. Um, and I, you know, I think um, it wasn't really until I worked on my first book that I had the sense that um, I sort of had a story that felt as big and as complete as all of the books that I'd read in the past, you know, something that fit that container and that that met the kind of standards of, of what you need to have to write a novel. Um, yeah, it wasn't, I think I, I have to say it, I, I wish I could do something else a lot of the time. Um, but, uh, yeah, the ideas are there and then they, you just have to work them out. Um, and it, I feel very lucky to be able to do this, um, and to, to have, to make work for an audience. I love it. Um, Barbara, you know, we all have, uh, circuitous routes that that bring us to to writing and publishing and and I love to hear people's stories of of kind of when the the writer bug uh you know bit them again and and you know you you kind of immerse yourself in in this world what what was it that brought you around to to decide that you had a story that you wanted to tell and share with the the greater world um, let's see. Well, I spent, um, when I, my first job out of college, I worked for a now defunct arm of Forbes called Forbes Traveler. <laughs> and from there I went to concierge.com, which is also now defunct. It at the time was the website for Condé Nast Traveler. And from there I went to a women's magazine and a television network. And I was working at a production studio in Chicago. Uh, when I came up with the idea for my first book, I, um, was standing outside. Uh, I had a, an office where I, had um, two computers and an iPad and television all running on the same desk at the same time. I maybe had three computers. It was screen heavy and it had no windows. And so I would go outside for a cigarette break to get some air. Um, I don't smoke anymore, but I did at the time. And um, yeah, and uh, I'd sort of been having some uh, conversations with my husband about uh, where our lives were going to go next. And um, and it's just the idea for my first book, just kind of, which is a murder mystery set at a fashion magazine called I'll Eat When I'm Dead, which is a thing that a, a real life, very rich woman said in The New Yorker. Um, I had the <laughs> idea for it as I was standing there and I put it in my Gmail and I like emailed it to myself on my, I think it was my first iPhone. I was like 2000 and 
11 or 12 or something like that. And um, yeah, and then I just kind of kept thinking about it. You know, I had always, um, I had always really enjoyed writing um, in not just for work. Um, like, I, I mean, I enjoy writing anything. I enjoyed writing copy for work. I enjoyed writing headlines. I enjoyed writing decks, you know. Um, but I also like, I always really enjoyed writing emails and I enjoyed having extended jokes with my friends. And that first book just felt like this kind of extended joke that I had for myself. And I think once I had about 20,000 words of it, which was maybe over two years of like every now and then kind of sitting down and pecking at it. Um, I looked at it and I thought, you know, I think I can sell this. And I think I, um, I think I can make it into something that's really funny and fun to share. So, yeah, it was, I mean, it's really, you know, you can't, I, um, the lifestyle of a writer is really not an ideal one. <laughs> it's very <laughs> difficult to romanticize. People do romanticize it, but why would you would want to romanticize sitting in a room by yourself pretending to be other people all day? You know, that part of it is like, really, <laughs> it's just like anything else. It's, it's hard work and it's solitary. Um, but the, uh, yeah, once you have the story, I mean, it just kind of. Yeah. Yeah. And I think at that point, you know, I was 30 then and I had, um, or I was almost 30 <laughs> by the time that book, by the time I sold that book, I think I was 30. And, um, so I had a, you know, a whole, I'd had an early career of building really good work habits and that was really helpful to me. And that was something that, um, at, I think probably during COVID, you know, a lot of people, I'm sure you made this joke. I made this joke early on, you know, at the very beginning of COVID, it was like the whole world became novelists. Yes. Every, yeah, right. <laughs> Everyone was working at home, making their own fun all day after years of, you know, the many comments to me that I'm sure you, people say, you know, you can work from wherever. You must be really flexible. And the truth is, for me, I'm actually really rigid. Um, you kind of have to you have to be pretty disciplined to get your work done in your house. Um as everyone, I think, has now learned. So I felt lucky uh, to start my my fiction career with all of that, all of those habits in my pocket. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because I have asked people about um, the COVID time because, like you said, uh, you know, the whole world became novelist. And in one sense, you know, novelists are used to working that way and used to a lot of folks work out of their home office and, and you know, not not going out and and being you know amidst the uh, the greater world uh, uh, on a daily basis, but there's something that happens when you know the rest of the world is doing that along with you, and it has really um, you know gotten to some people and kind of you know messed with the uh, their creativity. Did did you experience anything like that? Oh, that's an interesting point. There is something really freeing about playing hooky, isn't there? You feel yeah. like you're at home building your secret world and everyone else is like Joe versus the volcano kind of sludging to their cubicle. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. I Boy, did I feel that way. I think that I, um, it didn't mess, no, I didn't have that sense of it. I was just doing my best, I think like everybody else, to really try to stay positive, to count my blessings. Um, and to every day to try to exercise, um, to take care of my family, you know, to just, to just really keep my head up. And, um, but yeah, I mean, it was very hard. It not just the sense of everybody else going to work, but of being able to shut yourself off from the news right. and inhabit 
the world that you're building just to stay there. Obviously, that was really hard. <laughs> it was really hard for me and and still I think is is really hard. It's um it was uh something that was I took as absolute gospel when I first started writing books. I was so good at shutting everything off and um in, it's become increasingly difficult over the last 2 years and um I don't know. There's still kind of, that's the only, that's even the only way to read a book maybe is to turn off your phone, you know, and I value yeah. that more and more and more. I really do. So what, um, you, you had this idea, um, what did, did that first book idea, do you think it was inspired by your daily work, uh, or did it just happen to come to you, um, during that time? Like, did it, did it kind of come out of the the environment you were in um the magazine that i the women's magazine that i worked at is pretty um it doesn't exist anymore either uh it's now just web only i think but uh that was oh the oprah magazine which is pretty uh low-key as far as as magazines go and the one in the book is really high fashion and really high stakes uh, and some of the, like, a lot of those sort of basic understanding of how the industry works um, came from that context, of course. It came from my professional background because magazines as a product are kind of tricky. They they close four months out, you know, so every magazines cannot break news anymore. It's really hard for them to feel like immediate cultural documents um, in this day and age uh, when so much of the fashion that we see is really street fashion that gets telegraphed to us through Instagram. Um, or TikTok, depending on on your age, but really, you know, through your phone. Um, and magazines just can't compete with that. And so, at the time I was writing the book, I was really struck by that sense of um, displacement that I was seeing. Um, there was kind of panic at in the corporate environment that I worked in, and had been, I think, my whole career. I sort of, um, when I started working, um, it was sort of the rise of websites and everything else, and um, the standard editorial kind of vision was really freaked out by that. And I thought that was fascinating and really funny. Um, but the premise of the of the magazine and the book is um, about ethical and sustainable fashion, which um, I still, you know, is a nice idea. But uh, that's something that really came out of me feeling marketed to at the time. And, and we're so marketed uh, with that now, you know, slow fashion, sustainable fashion. And fashion is one of the most polluting industries on the planet. And it cannot be ethical and it cannot be sustainable. Um, it would be like someone selling you sustainable petroleum. It's just a really complicated um, <laughs> sale and yet it works. Um, and, you know, uh, so, yeah, that was kind of the some of the some of it came from a professional background. But then a lot of it came from, you know, my experience as a as a young woman living in the world and having media aimed at me. So, yeah. And then my second book um is about a painter. It's called Fake Like Me. It came out in 2019. And that one is, uh, it's also a mystery, but it's a darker, slower mystery. And it's sort of a very light remake of Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier. And then, uh, yeah, this is The Force of Such Beauty is my third book, which comes out next week. And this one is about an athlete who marries the uh, the prince of a very small country. And it's, uh, it's a suspenseful mystery sort of in its own way and that you're curious to find out what's going to happen to her, to the main character. Um, but it's not a, a locked room mystery like the first one, and it's not a sort of whodunit thriller like the second. So so when you start thinking of a new new book ideas, um, it, it seems like all of your books were 
inspired by something and and you said your second book was was a, a sort of a loose retelling of rebecca um in in a sort of way do, do you normally find things that inspire you that that you want to uh, kind of twist around put put your own spin on um or do ideas just come out of nowhere and then you start you know thinking oh, well this could connect to this other thing that people are familiar with yeah, well, the um, the ideas uh, come, they just show up, honestly, they show up fully formed. And they're, of course, related to the life that I'm living and the things that I'm reading and what I'm seeing. Um, but then how you make something into a book, how you connect it into how you make it something for someone else, more than just a joke that you tell yourself, but something that's for an audience. Um, that's kind of the work of writing a novel. Like that's that's what all that time goes into. And so with Fake Like Me, um, it's a, a retelling of Rebecca. I say this because it's not uh, that plot wise, that's not strictly t- true. But the narrative of Rebecca follows a protagonist who is a naive young woman who marries an older man and mo- moves to his uh, incredible property in the countryside. And she she's sort of at Uh, kind of she's on her back foot from the moment that she gets there and she's so insecure that she can't kind of figure out what's going on and it's a really um, interesting way to uh, experience a first person narrative because we can only know what the protagonist knows in that context when you're going along with a first person and so you know whatever their emotions are we're going to be colored by that too and so with my second book I Quite honestly, you know, I wrote it, uh, started writing it after I had sold my first book, but well before it had come out. And I had found myself gripped with a massive dose of insecurity. But I was an adult, you know, I was I was 30, 31 at the time. And so I knew what was happening to me. I sort of woke up every day and looked at the world through these insecurity lenses. And it was so weird that which is you know, that's that's one of the big things about adulthood, right, is you get wise enough to see your own emotional circumstances, but you doesn't mean you can fix it. Um, right. Self-awareness is not always very helpful. Um, <laughs> but I was amazed at how much it changed what I thought and felt about the world. And I thought that that was um, a great a great way to to work out a mystery. Um, and so that is what happened with Fake Like Me. And then uh, with The Force of Such Beauty, um, it came as kind of, I was in a gallery in Paris with a friend of mine who was pregnant with her first daughter and she was, uh, really nervous about it. And we were, uh, surrounded by all these portraits of these beautiful, lovely dead women. And, uh, <laughs> we just kind of started talking about how weirdly tragic it has been, you know, what women have been able to aspire to for so long has just been to, to be somebody's wife. That was kind of the highest thing that we'd been allowed to do for so long. And even though for our generation, you know, we've been educated, we've been out in the world, it still feels like that's a huge part of who we are. And um, yeah, and I, you know, I had this kind of joke of an idea about the plot. And then I really had, I've been thinking very profoundly about my own gender and and what it means to inhabit my gender. And I'm, you know, I I feel um, no gender dysphoria. I feel very comfortable in my body. I am who I am, but that doesn't mean I don't think about it all the time, you know? Sure. So, um, yeah. And the force of such beauty is a princess story, which is this really classic narrative that you get told from the day you're born about what it is that girls are supposed to want and women are supposed to want. So yeah, it's all, I don't know. It's, it's like a weird social joke mixed with like a deep emotional 
interior experience. <laughs> and, and that those are, are are some of the the most poignant um, jumping off places sometimes when when you can find the humor, even if it's dark humor in something. Um, there, for some reason, that tends to open the door um, for you to really explore something. I don't, I don't know what it what that role of of humor, even if it's you know uh, offhanded dark humor. Sure. But th- there's something about that that tends to open the creative door. Um, that, I, I, I don't know. That's just a. I think that's true. I think that's very astute. Yeah. I mean, because it's hard to look at ourselves, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's really it's hard to be a person. Um, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, and then um, the book I'm working on now um, is will also be with Dutton, which is putting out the Force of Such Beauty, and it is about a lonely clairvoyant. And that, um, I can't really say much more than that because I'm still working on it. A lonely clairvoyant. Um, yeah, a woman who is, can hear other people's thoughts. Yeah, is funny, um, but but in a dark, sad <laughs> kind of terrible. way. <laughs> yeah, but terrible. But terrible, oh, yeah. Well, in The Force of Such Beauty, um, the the novel is told from the first-person perspective from, from Caroline. Um, mm-hmm. When and, and I know what you said about, you know, thinking through these kind of big cultural concepts but how did you distill that down to one human being and where where did caroline come from oh gosh well um caroline is an athlete who is from a young democracy that's very similar to our own she is a south african athlete um and south africa has a lot of parallels to the united states both in good and bad ways and uh, she meets a she meets a man in the novel who is the prince of a of a small European kingdom, and um, his his whole pitch to her is uh, effectively an argument for authoritarianism, and um, you know she falls for it, and that's kind of what the sort of tale as old as time is of the fairy tale, which is to make yourself valuable to a valuable man that you that the the man in question will take care of you and you don't need to think about anything else. Um, and for Caroline too, um, she is, uh, she's really vulnerable to this uh, idea uh, in a lot of ways, but I wanted to think about politically why she might be vulnerable to it in a way that kind of maybe didn't force us to talk about America. Uh, I have the privilege of having been able to visit South Africa quite a bit over the last 12, 15 years or so. And um, they're, it's really amazing what they've done with their democracy in such a short time. You know, apartheid did not end very long ago. Um, and they have this really progressive constitution and they've had all kinds of political challenges. It's democracy is hard. Um, there's a commitment to it there. There's also a kind of cynicism that I think we've seen a similar cynicism in the United States towards democracy. We've certainly seen it obviously in Russia, uh, but in other kind of new democracies in Eastern Europe, that have uh, failed to, to, to follow through on the promise of their democracy. And um, yeah, so that it, uh, from the first person perspective, it, uh, it's a, you know, writing her voice, um, it, I, it, she's not like me at all, but I knew what her voice was from the very beginning. And um, for a fairy tale, it's a balancing act. Fairy tales have 
really powerful uh, elements to them. Uh, sun, moon, castle, stars, you know, these, these right. words, gold, silver, right? You know, they just, they do so much with so little. And they're, they tend- they're very emotionally triggering words that for I, I don't I don't know if it's because these are stories and, and concepts that, that we've been raised on, but they, they definitely take you to a place when you use language like that. Yeah, they're these really profound archetypes about and about beauty. They're about these kind of heavenly, sparkling, uh, perfect places. You know, right. th- th- there's there's this total fantasy to it. And um, I it, there's kind of a it's been interesting. I sort of um, I look at like I don't, discourse about culture and sometimes you think culture is getting fairer and more equitable. And sometimes it just seems like actually that's not the case. Like everywhere you turn, there's just another person trying to be the richest person that has ever lived. You know, and yeah. the pursuit of wealth for its own goal is um, the sort of modern twist on like why that's OK it tends to be, you know, if you do well for yourself, you can do more for everybody else. That's the idea is that once you're rich and once you have power, you can do more for other people. And that's right. a really that's not, maybe not like a great moral goal for life Um or, or for kind of any sort of greater social purpose. It doesn't really put us always into taking care of each other. And um, yeah, anyway, I find all of this, I'm trying not to give anything away about the book. Yeah. So maybe I've wandered freely <laughs> no, here. That's I fine. apologize. That's fine. Um, have your other novels been written uh, in the first person perspective? No, I'll even I'm uh, a uh, fake like me is written in the first person. And uh, so one of them, yes. And then uh, I'll even I'm dead is uh, third person omniscient or free and direct discourse, if you will, where you have a, a, a sort of voice sitting by the fire telling the story with limited insight into each character. And then um, my lonely psychic, lonely clairvoyant book that I'm working on now will act, will be written in first person omniscient. <laughs> which is a really weird <laughs> place to start from but i promise that it's very fun to read um it's a lot but it's very fun to read um well that new one almost has to be written in first person omniscient doesn't yeah it? that's that's it that's all you can do she's she's hearing other people's interiors i so, love that so um, i I can't wait. Can we just speed up and get to that book? I, I, I want to read that so bad. That's, Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Yeah, I got, I'm, I'm working on it every day. That's so funny. Um, the, the character of Caroline, let's, let's get back to the book that's out presently. Sure. Um, <laughs> the, the character of Caroline, you've got this, this sort of archetype, um, like you mentioned earlier of this princess story um this person who finds herself in circumstances that the rest of us would just seem uh you know is, is a fairy tale i mean you know there, there's no better yeah. way to, to say it um but she's not what you would think of as princess material um you know she's an athlete she's uh you know not uh uh not overeducated. She's she's a normal person. Um, what what was it like playing with with those um, types of assumptions? You know that telling the 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 um, it's it's not a rags to riches story, but it's a it's a commoner to royal story, and, yeah. and taking a very common person with a common life. What 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 was fun to play with 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 those types of scenarios? 
Well, it was very hard. It's very difficult to write a character who has a limited uh, amount of information. And particularly for for me, it was really hard. It was like having both hands tied behind my back. And um, but I wanted her, you know, to um, have an experience of the world that was bodily and that was instinctual and kind of less conscious. Uh, mainly because uh, when I look at the kind of media narratives around actual real life living princesses, it's uh, any any indication that they're uh, strategic about what they're doing. Uh, Kate Middleton was famously called Weighty Katie for waiting for <laughs> Prince, Prince William to marry her. But like, what was she going to do with her life after she dated Prince William? Like that ruined her life dating that guy. There's no there's that was going to follow her around forever. That was it. Sure. That was the job, you know? And so, um, you know, it is, it's a, getting married has been part of women's economic future for thousands of years. <laughs> it is no different today. It's so true for so many people. And I wanted Caroline, I wanted us to have empathy with, towards her in a way that I see, um, uh, a lack of empathy towards other women who are in the public eye. Um, in the book, Caroline has a fall and she has to have uh, reconstructive surgery. She falls on her face and she has to have it put back together. And I think you feel uh, really sorry for her. You think, oh my gosh, if you had to have cheek implants, it would be really hard to smile, right? It would be really painful to have your face just absolutely stitched up like that. Um, but when we see uh, other women doing this, what we decide in a way that we decide is voluntary. Think of any female public figure whose whose appearance has changed. Um, there's a, we have a lot less sympathy for that. But I think that recovering from those kinds of surgeries is so painful. It must feel like you have a hole in your head already, you right. know, to choose to do that. People do these things for a reason because they feel that they have economic value. Um, and I. Uh, I'm curious as to why we feel that that matters. And I am because I feel it, too. You know, I'm getting older. I feel these pressures to be prettier all the time. And then there's part of me that's like, but why? What does it matter? You know, death is coming. Right. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's nothing like uh, like laughing about the um, uh the the pointlessness of of the human experience <laughs> totally totally and i mean you know these these thoughts and feelings like it's not like they just come out of the ether for no reason yeah there, there's a enormous amount of money being aimed at women to get yeah. us to spend money on our appearances um and and on on weddings on being a wife being a mother you know whatever it is it's it's a huge industry women are a huge industry well, you you tell a story very much about the um, the uh, the human experience, but but specifically the the woman's human experience. Um, but then that's amplified through this tale of royalty and 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 how um, you know we kind of take the the common journey and and amplify it to kind of ridiculous proportions. Um, how do you prepare to write? Um, a, a princess story and and about all of the things the the uh, that that involves and entails and all of the little details that make up royal life. Well, I read uh, dozens and dozens of books about princesses, both living and dead, mostly dead. Um, and I visited uh, many, 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 many castles in Europe um, and within the kind of seven smallest nations within Europe. 
And within Andorra and Monaco, my favorite was probably um, something called, uh, oh, oh, it just went right out of my head. It's a part of, uh, it's technically part of France, but it's located in Spain. It's called Livia, L-L-I-V-I-A with a funny little accent over the A or over the I. And uh, it's this castle that uh, it's managed to retain its status being one part of a country that's located in another by having this uh, policy historically uh, they just kept saying to the townspeople, look, like we know we're France and you guys are Spain and we know that's weird for you. And we get that everyone wants to resolve this. But like anytime there's a real conflict, you can just come in here and we'll close everything up and we'll keep everybody safe. Like, just don't worry about it. And this actually has managed to this worked. And so this has uh, kept this castle that is geographically located, you know, it's sort of like Hawaii, if you will. But if the ground around Hawaii was Canada instead of an ocean. Um uh, located or if Alaska was completely inland. Um, yeah. So I, yeah, I saw tons and tons of castles. Um, most of which are, you know, castles are prisons. They're like designed to be closed up like that. They're designed to be, they're military garrisons. They're designed to protect a specific kind of body. Yeah. So, um, you know, that there have been a lot of, um, tales told about uh the differences in um normal life and then uh like royal life and it i always find it interesting when um when you look at the other side um and you kind of compare that to the way we live and it's easy to kind of poke fun at um these people that live uh, you know in a glass house and and all of that and it it always um intrigues me when when the author finds out something um about the way the other side lives that that kind of adds some humanity to it and and you you start to realize that that a, a lot of this weird pomp and circumstance actually maybe kind of means something and that there's there's a reason behind it and it, and it humanizes them. Uh, was there anything that surprised you in preparing for this that that you realized, oh, that that's not just some inane, you know, thing that that they do? Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, I think the more that you read about monarchies, particularly in Europe, the more it is clear that they are uh, meaning they're deeply meaningful to the aristocracy, like to actually be in a monarchical family is probably terrible. You're never alone. You're constantly being judged. If you're a woman, your only value is to participate in generating more members for a hereditary government. So the only right. thing that matters is your reproductive future and you don't have control over it. You're totally controlled by the state. And once you've given birth. And, you know, if we look at like Henry VIII, who just kept cycling through wives because they wouldn't have boys and cutting off their heads. I mean, you re your life is really terrifying. Yeah. And so it's not just like die in childbirth. It's like die right after childbirth. So for most women, for most of human history, to be a royal is pretty bad. Um, but it's the aristocrats that really need them. And you see that um, when you start to look at the kind of information about the court of who gets to have access, who is always who are the people who are always watching over the royal family. Right. Uh, so when we look at historical France, at the kind of uh, the last few Louis, the the Sun King and uh, uh, Louis the Sixteenth, I think, who was married to Marie Antoinette, who had, they had their heads cut off in the in the revolution. Um, you know, they had uh, members of the royal bedchamber who would come in when they were there in the morning, who would like 
decide who got dressed. And all these people were aristocrats who had rights and they had all of these systems about ranking each other. Um, which, you know, if you're just a person getting out of bed in the morning and people keep handing their night, your nightgown or your, your day <laughs> shirt to someone else who keeps coming in the room, like that's a really disruptive way to start your day. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, in the aristocrats, they need someone who's above them, right? Like nobody wants, who wants to be the CEO of a company to like take all the fire? Nobody. You want to be right up there in middle management, you know, upper middle management. You want to be able to right. delegate everything, not do a ton but like when somebody's head has to roll, you definitely don't want it to be yours. Um, and and that is where uh, decisions, that's where you actually see kind of collective decision making. That's where you see uh, parliaments, for example, forming. Um, it's where you see ministers, advisory councils. Uh, that's where you see real power being enacted because kings and queens don't necessarily have you unilateral power. They have, you tend to have more checks and balances than that. So you you had uh, these these ideas these questions when you began this book um, did did the research and the writing of this answer some of those personal questions for you? Gosh, I think that it did. Yeah, I think I feel very differently about princess stuff than I used to. I used to think of it as kind of like a funny silly thing that still sort of had some appeal, you know, like when uh, my husband and I got married 10 years ago, when I was shopping for my dress, I remember they, the saleswoman asking me if I wanted to try on tiaras and they weren't kidding. And I laughed. <laughs> I thought it was a joke. I was like, haha, that's so funny. But then you sit there for two hours trying on dresses and you watch woman after woman after woman literally put on a tiara and all the female relatives cry. Like the whole, it just felt so, I felt like I was watching sort of my fellow women like turn into six-year-olds on the altar of consumerism and then sort of losing their own autonomy. It was so weird. You watch, you're standing at a store where you're just watching women spend tens of thousands, $10,000 to immobilize themselves. You know, the higher the heel, the tighter the dress, the more the bedazzling. So you, you couldn't escape even if you wanted to. It's just crazy. <laughs> um, and so I went from feeling like, wow, this is crazy, but it's something that isn't a part of me to realizing this has been in the air that I've been breathing for so long. And um, yeah, and I think I think it's kind of detaching in a, in, in a good way, in a positive way. Well, not to to give people the impression that this is a uh, a heavy book. I mean, it it does wrestle with some heavy things, but the force of such beauty is a fun book as well. You you'll have a <laughs> great you. time reading it. Uh, it's available when when folks are hearing this. It's available everywhere now. You can grab it in Kindle edition, or you know, if you want to hold the paper in your hand, uh, and audio book. Have you gotten to hear any of the the pre release audio yet? I've only heard a few clips. The um, actress who's reading it is South African Tessa Juber. She's very, uh, she's very well regarded in South Africa. She has, she has a good IMDb page, and she has a great voice. So I'm really looking forward to uh, hearing it once the file is final. Does she have uh, that South African, almost a little Dutch lilt to her voice? Yes, she does. It's toned back a little bit because Caroline has been away from home for so long that I think that, you know, that part of her voice has really kind of faded. But yes, it is certainly there. She has a beautiful voice. That's amazing. I love it. The Force of Such Beauty. Go grab it. Uh, visit your local bookstore or if your local bookstore doesn't have it for whatever reason, use the Amazon links in the show notes. Barbara, um, if folks are just discovering you and want to dig into all this great stuff that you do, where can they find you online? 
they can go to my website, which is barbaraborland.com, and you can see some essays that I wrote. I wrote one recently about competing in the American Crossword Puzzle Tournament for Good Housekeeping, which I enjoyed so much, and I think that's a good place to start that read. Love it. We'll link that up to make it every make it easy for everyone to find you. Uh, Barbara, this has been so much fun. Thank you for taking time to come on the show. Thank you so much, Hank. You are an amazing interviewer.